Too often in science journalism, we hear voices not of the people who might be affected by new discoveries, but of those who made them. I'm Steve Scott, and I'm a science communicator. I've been travelling the country with a team from The Guardian, visiting different groups of people to hear their thoughts about a gene-editing technology called CRISPR. Because gene-editing has the potential to change the lives of all of us, including Victoria and Jocelyn. So I think science has unlimited potential, and this potential should be, should be explored more by scientists. I feel that the scientists obviously have the knowledge. Knowledge is power. They know um, which conditions they're more likely to be able to get a better, better result with, if you like. In this final episode of Common Threads, we'll be exploring something that our participants felt was incredibly important. Trust, or often mistrust, in science and medicine. You know, when you walk in and you say, my son has a rare chromosome anomaly, they know nothing about it, and you're actually the person who is educating them about it. But you know, back then, when you've got no knowledge of anything, and you've got somebody who come, like, high and, high and mighty, knows everything, even if you disagree, I think, back then, you haven't got the power. If you haven't heard episodes one and two of this series, you might want to go back and listen now. In episode one, we gave a quick rundown of DNA, genes and gene editing. In that episode, we also looked at the connection between DNA and identity. Then, in episode two, we discussed the disconnect between the public and the scientific community. The aim of this project is to shift the focus from the scientists to understanding some of the questions that the public has about gene editing. Meaning that what we've deliberately ended up with is a series of science podcasts, but without any scientists. Um, So I'm going to talk about CRISPR, but I want to ask how many people have heard of CRISPR. Well, until now. Hi, I'm uh, Dr Helen O'Neill. I am a molecular geneticist and I work on early embryo formation and genome editing as well. And I lecture in reproductive genetics. Helen is currently based at University College London. She joined our session up in Birmingham, which was made up of people from the local black African and Caribbean community. She started the session with a quick overview of CRISPR, which allows scientists to edit or cut and paste DNA. Essentially, it's a... That's Isaac, a local pharmacist who was with us that evening. It's a really good question. How does CRISPR know where to cut DNA? It has two short, what are called guide RNAs. And these are, these are what I showed you were single-stranded pieces of DNA that have a similar sequence just at one end. And that's all they need is, it's almost like a zipper or Velcro. If you had one piece of Velcro and you put it in and you were like feeling along the floor and there was another piece of Velcro, you know it's going to stick there. It kind of works like that. It's really long. It is really it's very, long. It's very, 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 very long. It's like ridiculously long. And if you cut in the wrong place, you'll cut out the wrong gene. How does it know? How do you know exactly where to cut? I'll tell you. There's, it's what's called a protospacer adjacent motif. And all you need is this PAM sequence, a protospacer adjacent motif, and a guide RNA that will guide you to that. And it can essentially be um, completely create, created synthetically that you create this guide RNA, which is a single piece, and you're, you have your matching protospacer adjacent motif. 
perfect, obviously, um, uh, to, to locate it in the genome. It's incredible that it can do it, but you would think that there are places in the genome that are all look the same, and that is certainly true to an extent, but the technology to make it refined and make it really, really exact is getting so much better so that we can find there wouldn't be other places in the genome that it would cut. You're, but you're, yeah, but you're absolutely... I'll, expl I'll explain more in a second about... Question, so, oh, no, I'm glad you did. No, no, I'm glad you did. Um, so when I say it, uh, the benefits about CRISPR are that it's cheap, fast and precise... You might not have caught that, but in the background, Isaac, maybe joking, maybe not, is questioning whether CRISPR is really getting better at knowing where to cut. This kind of scepticism came up a lot in our sessions. There is huge excitement around the potential of CRISPR in the field of medicine for treating and possibly eradicating diseases that have a genetic underpinning. One of these is sickle cell anemia, which affects the shape and function of red blood cells. Sickle cell is particularly common in people with an African or Caribbean family background. So for many in our Birmingham group, it was something they had knowledge and experience of, including Shamara and her family, who we visited at home in Wolverhampton. Hi, Hi Shamara here. Um, my name's Shamara and I'm 33. I'm the sole parent to two boys, age four and five. Um, I've moved from London to Wolverhampton and I'm currently a preschool teacher. Hello, Hello what's your name? Azariah. Hi, Azariah, my name's Max. Azariah is very creative, likes football, likes sports. Very nice. Ezekiel is a mummy's boy. <laughs> so yes, very shy. And he's the child of the sickle cell. Are you telling me the truth? Alright, let me go up and see it first. No. Funny enough, when they told me he has sickle cell, they said go on Google. So that's all I could do was go on Google and Google what sickle cell was. That's quite emotional, actually, because I didn't understand why my son had to get the full sick cell and my first son had nothing, so I didn't expect him to have anything. Um, and the hospital told me over the phone, and then it is what it is. You just have to move forward. Who's that? Well, my name is Sid Thomas. I'm 54 years old. I'm a motor vehicle technician and MOT tester. Live in Nottingham. Got four four daughters, two grandsons. And maybe say that you've got a condition. Oh, maybe say <laughs> I have got a condition. I've got sickle cell anemia, and with the sickle cell anemia, it brought on DVT. So right now, I've got DV and thrombosis, which I'm on warfarin for. And leading on from there. Um, I had a kidney transplant in 2013. Previous to that, I was on dialysis for about eight years. And all these complications caused from sickle cell. Who's that, boys? Hello, Hello. Hello. Put it this way. If you're not in a crisis with sickle cell, it doesn't mean that you're 100% comfortable. You're always living day to day with something, whether it's an achy hip, or an achy arm, or an achy chest, believe it or not, headache, 
but it's not something that would put you into hospital for admission for treatment but it's all part of the sickle cell sickle cell another thing you go to bed fine and you wake up in agony well the painful how can i describe it to put it in a in a verbal way so you can visualize it just imagine you know those what you call those people who make horseshoe them blacksmiths you see how hot that rod is pork it in your chest you might get an idea what i'm talking about i'm 50 odd years old and i cry like a baby when, when i'm in crisis you don't care where you don't care who is watching you but when that pain hit well i'm a godly person put it that way right and when i in agony i ask god to finish it i'm ready finish it So if you can imagine the kind of pain you're in, for you ready to give up on life, give up on your wife, give up on your kids, give up on your family, give up on everything just because of this pain, then you can imagine what it feels like. So sickle cell, everything's off, off the... Uh, sickle cell is caused by a single letter change, just one letter change um, in the HPV gene, which makes basically, this is a sickle here, it physically makes a red blood cell which is round like this, this shaped. Okay, so this is the example of uh, a red blood cell and a sickle cell. Okay, and this can cause blood clots and a lot of pain and affects an awful lot of people. And while the median lifespan in the States is your mid-40s, it is between five and eight years old in Africa. Um, so this is an example of a perfect candidate you know, disease that could be so easily treated um, and prevented and, you know, using genome editing. This idea of editing the genome is something we know can make people feel very uneasy, especially when it comes to germline editing, where changes and any unintended consequences or errors could potentially be passed on to future generations. Because of this, Research is tightly regulated around the world. But there's just one problem. Crazy scientists. You can laugh, you can laugh, and that's fine that you laugh, but the fact is, crazy scientists are real. And you'll get scientists that will decide that they do funky things with DNA and inject funny, funny things in, and you'll get these strange babies, and there are crazy scientists. And you think, you know, and, and now you can laugh and it's the truth. No, the fact is it's true. And once you do it to baby, then it's, then it's in the population and, be, and you pass it along. And that's why you don't play a play around with germ cells. Somatic cells, fine, but germ cells, no, because if you do that, then it's like, you know. Okay, I'm going to give you yeah. an example of where crazy scientists... Crazy maybe isn't the right label, but it is hard not to be reminded of the controversial work by researcher Dr. Herjen Kwai, which we talked about in the last episode. You may remember he reportedly used CRISPR to edit the genome of twin girls and then was later sentenced to three years in prison for violating medical regulations. But scientists have been discussing the potential misuse of this technology for a long time. The first session we recorded was with a group of early career scientists in London who had all taken part in a science competition called iGEM or International Genetically Engineered Machine. Our lead contact in that group was Eloise, a natural sciences student from University College London. 
She was the first to respond to the question of whether they agreed with the decisions made by Dr. Her. Um, I'm going to make, I'm going to say yes because uh, this sort of thing has been done before. So I always think of Edward Jenner, who uh, unethically experimented on children without their consent with smallpox. And uh, yeah, sure, it's a really bad thing. We got a smallpox vaccine out of it. So I think sometimes you have to do really bad things like that to get good results. In case you don't know, Edward Jenner was a doctor and scientist who performed the world's first vaccination in 1796. It targeted smallpox. Around that time, members of the farming community had noticed that milkmaids infected with cowpox were less likely to catch smallpox. So to test this, Jenner exposed an eight-year-old son of his gardener to pus collected from a milkmaid who'd been infected with cowpox. A few weeks later, he then deliberately infected the boy again, but this time with smallpox. The disease didn't develop, and the first vaccine was born. Under the lens of modern-day medical ethics, many would argue that risking someone's life to test what was essentially just an old wives' tale was inexplicable and immoral. Smallpox was eventually eradicated, and Jenner's experiment also paved the way for vaccination as we know it today. And of course, some people might point to that and say the benefits outweighed the risk. At least, they might say that in retrospect. In our London session, Victoria was next to respond to the question about Dr Herr's use of CRISPR. Hi all, my name is Victoria, I'm originally from Bulgaria, study cell biology at University College London. I'm really passionate about science communication and spreading science to people all around the world. Uh, so that's me, yeah. You know, as you mentioned, Jenner did that, but that was hundreds of years ago and pe- the world wasn't that global. The world is now very much global. You know, people from all around the world gather together, they discuss science, they, they, they make decisions. So I think considering that, considering we're living in this kind of world, we should take into account... Um, uh, the opinions of many different people. And taking into account doesn't necessarily mean, oh, you know, you don't know the science, well, definitely we should take your opinion. You, you should be willing to um, see the facts uh, and appreciate what science has done and appreciate what science tells you. But then again, um, have a better dialogue between different communities. Well, I have mixed up feelings about uh, him doing this work. So my name is Agata. I'm from Poland and I study human genetics at UCL. I'm in my master year. I mean, of course, I would like to see more gene- genome editing in humans being done, but I'd rather have a series of experiments beforehand, before modifying the final stage embryo and letting it grow and become a person. And yes, even though he got consent from parents, I think he should have also discussed this with the institute because what came out is that the institute didn't know he was doing this um, but yeah, of course I understand as Eloise said that we need to keep on progressing so I'd like to see genome editing in humans but in a more transparent way so that the public is aware. Personally I think it's really hard to put a burden to a new technology like this one. I'm Jakob, I'm originally from Italy and I'm now in my second year of studies at UCL studying in a biochemistry with year in industry degree. We're going to definitely have to find stop signs along the way, but 
because we're now in the phase in which the field is exploding, we don't really know what could be the consequences, but at the same time, what could be the potential that we might stop by putting stop signs a bit too early on the road. This tension between scientific progress and regulation isn't a new one. But it was still one that our young scientists in London seemed concerned about. But in Birmingham, this was not the most pressing issue. I can't help but think that when we talk about science, we talk about it so objectively, we forget that science exists differently from people. So this technology sounds fabulous, but is it like a child dies every four minutes because of a lack of access to clean water? This is Nicole a lecturer with a PhD in health research. We've got children that can't eat in certain parts of the world. Like even I notice you sort of talk about the median life expectancy for someone with sickle cell in the States. And then at the bottom, you've kind of got Africa as it age five to eight. But Africa as a continent is so huge. Just the fact that we talk about Africa, is it like nearly 60 countries? And we talk about it as a lump, whereas there's so much diversity within Africa. Yet the realities for some of the children living there with some of these conditions, we kind of just... We just kind of just talk about it really fleetingly. We talk about all this being great for people, but the majority of the world aren't going to have any benefit from this whatsoever because children will still die of sickle cell and they'll still die of all these diseases that will be cured in the rich UK. As CRISPR is still largely restricted to the lab, it's hard to say whether concerns like Nicole's will turn out to be true. But access to another technology, IVF or in vitro fertilisation, might offer up some clues. IVF is a technique where fertilisation of the egg happens outside the body, before it's then re-implanted. Since it was first successfully used in 1978, millions of babies have been born this way, and many of them to parents who had difficulties conceiving. But in 2017, only around a third of IVF cycles in England were funded by the NHS. And with a cycle of IVF at private clinics costing £5,000 or more, it's just too expensive for many people. Expand this out to a global picture, and the disparity is even more apparent. According to a 2010 study, even though IVF services had developed or on the cusp of being developed in more than half of the world's countries, only 31% of sub-Saharan African countries had an IVF clinic. Concerns about how access to CRISPR would be shared out globally really came to the fore during the conversations in Birmingham. The chat support group also shared similar concerns. Where and how a treatment like CRISPR will be used was something that came up in their session too, including from Michelle, a teaching assistant, charity worker and mother of two. I'm going to have a hazard a guess that it would probably all come down to money, so I imagine that they would invest the money in the area that costs them the most. Let's say if it's cancer treatment, if that costs um, the government X, Y and Z, but the treatment of this would be significantly less, I imagine they would go for that first. So all money led. I think they'd look at it as in the amount of people they could help. Hi, I'm Jocelyn. I have two stepchildren and four children. So I have six altogether, five boys, one girl. They range from 39 to 14. 
The 16-year-old has a rare chromosome anomaly called 48XXYY. Um, I run the UK support group for that, so I support the families and organise conferences and bring over um, the doctors from America who specialise in the condition. So if, if there was one particular gene edit they could do that would help a bigger population, they may well be investing in that. But where I have an issue with that is that it's often the more rare conditions that always get left out because the cancers, the, the more prevalent conditions like even down to autism for instance autism is much more recognized throughout all the different authorities whether it's health authority school education authority you know when you walk in and you say my son has a rare chromosome anomaly they know nothing about it and you're actually the person who is educating them about it and how to help your child and they kind of write them off because they've never heard of it it seems so unfair that these people are just as important as the ones that have cancer and higher profile conditions. And although I understand that it would maybe help more people with that condition, it's always the ones that have the rarer conditions that are always left out. I feel it's not something like the big C word. It's not cancer. It's not autism. It's not down syndrome those things people in the world see as important even diabetes people see those things as important i don't think they see sickle cell as something important because it's you may get sickle cell you may not so i don't think that they want people to stress or know about something that you may or may not get in your household you can open one new person. Yes. You can open one new I used to work at a Ford dealership in London, because as I said, I'm a mechanic MOT tester. We used to get sent on courses, like when something new's coming out. I went to DaVinci because that's where the Ford plant is. We used to do a week there to do courses. The second day. I was in agony in the classroom, agony, and Davinci, they ain't got a clue. So I decided to just sit it out. So the instructor said, Sid, would you like to come up and show us this thing on the board? And I said, I can't move. <laughs> and he don't know why. I said, I can't move. And, and I said, I'll explain after. So I just sat there and held it. And then when everybody went outside to have their break, I told him that I've got sickle cell and I'm in agony. So they took me to this clinic in Davinci. The Ford, Ford got their own clinic and stuff. And they didn't know what to do. And... I'm talking like late 80s, early 90s. So they took me to Northampton General. And this is a big hospital. And they didn't know what to do. I was living in London then. So they have to call my hospital where I used to attend, which is St. Thomas's, ask for the doctor who treats sickle cell. And for them to treat me in Northampton, my doctor in London have to be telling them what to do by phone. So it's things like that. And because of things like that, I never used to go out of my comfort zone, if you know what I mean. My comfort zone is London, Nottingham, Birmingham, where I know the population is, a lot of black people. So hopefully that's my thinking. The hospital there should have an idea if I come in with sickle cell. How do you think society looks at people with sickle cell? We washed up, my friend. Simple as that. Because if, you, if your life expectancy is like 16, when I was told 16, that's what they think. Basically, you're washed up. you got no use. And that's how I find myself when I used to get released from my job, then let's put it that way. I feel useless. And I'm a man who 
I follow my dad's footsteps. I see my dad look after his family, provide a roof. Provide, we never went without anything. And that's to me what a dad or a man should do, a husband or a, you know what I mean? And that's me. So even though there's so many times when I, I could have given up, but now I, I still work now. I still do my mechanical MOT, even though it's part-time now because I can't really with the sickle cell. If I showed you my arm, mate, I need to expose myself. But not in the way that you, your mind's thinking, anybody who's listening to this. <laughs> That's, look at, ooh, I'm getting some arms now, mate. But look at that. Yeah. So there it is. So there's a vein that, this vein on my arm, they took it from my leg. So I've got a cut from here to there where they could whip the vein out, string up in there so I could have dialysis because I needed dialysis like urgent, not like it build up with some people build up, build up, build up. Mine just went, my kidney just went. That's back girl. Yes. yes. During our time in Birmingham, there was one particular concern that kept coming up again and again. What protections will be in place to prevent a technology like CRISPR from being abused? Sickle cell is more likely to affect people of African or Caribbean origin. So when the discussion turned to the possibilities of using gene editing to eradicate the condition, the memory of historical abuses were at the forefront of some of our participants' minds. All right there, my name's Drew Salim. I'm a musician and a festival director, particularly with Afroflux and B-Side Hip Hop Festival. Just wondering, those bodies that are set up in order to stop the, the so-called crazy scientists from doing what they may do. The thing is, in certain communities, we already know this to be true. It's not, an, it's not a what if, it's a when will it happen and how does it get stopped or, or, or judged against or, or treated in a criminal sense or whatever. So I was just wondering about, while I'm wary, because I'm, we all know about like Tuskegee and various different things in South Africa working on um, the, the apartheid regime were working on various things to remove certain populations. So how will this not go into designer babies and, and things of that nature? The Tuskegee study was an infamous clinical trial that ran for four decades, starting in 1932. It involved hundreds of black male participants who had been diagnosed with syphilis and who were told they were being treated when they were actually just being monitored, even though effective treatments were available. This study has become synonymous with both racist and unethical medical experimentation. So maybe it's not surprising that things like this are in some people's minds when it comes to discussions about gene editing. And I just wanted to say one thing, and I think um, it's important as well to give context because we're all here and we're all people of African origin and I think that very much shapes our response to things like this because our history of being abused by science shapes us and even though many of us have got mums or aunts that work in the NHS, we still have an understanding of the legacy of being excluded from medicine, being used as guinea pigs for medicine, so we probably have more questions and more critical of things like this 
this, especially with histories of eugenics, mm. um, trying to destroy people, whether it's World War II, yeah, mm. um, the negative effects of psychology on our people. So it's not necessarily an attack, but it's a critical discussion of things that have often been used to subjugate us and abuse our bodies and us as people. So I think that's probably the approach that we're coming and that's quite critical and questioning of this kind of research because it's hurt us so much in the past. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a great way for us to go into dinner because we're touching on, <laughs> we're touching on the, the governance. The voice you heard there was that of Anita Shervington, an engagement fellow with the Wellcome Trust, who helped to organise and mediate our Birmingham session. As the ideas from the first half of our session were discussed over the dinner table, the second half kicked off much like the first ended. I was just thinking as well about, you know, in science there's a lack of diversity in science. I'm Derek, I'm a senior pastor at a local church in Birmingham. Uh, I also uh, work for a large engineering company where I head up uh, innovation, technology and asset management. There's a lack of diversity amongst um, funders, amongst those who get funded, um, amongst where decisions are made. And in terms of um, the morality and the ethics, you know, who determines it, who sets it? You know, in this example, we had a, describe him as a bit of a mad scientist, setting his own standard and deciding that he was going to push back the boundaries and the barriers. And even though people disagree with him um, openly, that, but there are many that will use the fact of what he's done as uh, almost to weaponize the uh, argument of pushing the boundaries, because that's what research, that's what science is about. And society... Uh, has to sort of put checks and balances against the researchers. And actually, we can't leave the decision-making about what is moral and what is ethical and what is right just in the hands of a few. It has to be a collective view that's given by a number of people. Something that might extend to other technologies, like artificial intelligence or AI. AI is a great idea. But it's flawed because the people that program it are flawed. Therefore, they are sexist, racist, classist, etc. Ist because that I mean that's already a uh, consideration right now that AI is turning around and, and and calling people names literally. When you put into Google "beautiful woman," the first so many pages are going to show a, a, a paler, blonder, blue-eyed person, and that is the prejudice not of the uh, system itself, but who programmed the system. CRISPR or any other thing, especially with genes, is going to have that bias in the work. Even if people don't have it consciously, they may not necessarily be racist or sexist, they're going to have a subconscious bias because of the systems and the spheres that are racist and classist that we live in. Recently, the Wellcome's Global Monitor Survey asked over 140,000 people in more than 140 countries what they think and feel about health and science. It revealed that nearly three quarters of people worldwide solidly trust scientists. But this trust can be quite fragile. For some of our Birmingham group, recent history has made trusting science and trusting scientists difficult. If we are to try and use this technology to help as many people as possible, these issues of trust must be addressed. It's something that takes us back to Shamara and Sid. So 
sometimes we do have to be wary and aware of what happened in the past but in order to be brought into things and move forward we've got to at least try yes the past is something that we've got to be aware of but i think the gene editing is not just for sickle cell so it's not something that they're primary they're, they're saying okay we're going to try it on this ethnic background it's for a spectrum it's a bigger spectrum than just sickle cell but then when you've got no knowledge of anything and you've got somebody who come like high and high and mighty knows everything you, even if you disagree, I think, but then you haven't got the power. If you don't know your history, then that's what I would say. You have to know your history before you can make up your mind to do things like that. That's serious, gene genetic. That is a serious stuff. I wouldn't tell anybody not to do it, but in my, the way I believe things, if my mom did that when I was a kid, then that would be her choice. But I don't think I would do that with my kid because my kid should have a reflection of me, not a reflection of something that doctor change. And do you think part of that reflection is sickle cell? Because that's part of you, right? Yes, sickle cell is part of me. S simple as that. If it could cure sickle cell without messing with anything else, just cut out that little gene that says sickle cell on it and patch it back together, then cool. For me to accept that and to do it, I would have to have that surgeon, PhD, whatever you want to call it, who is developing it to sit me down and explain to me from start to finish before I would even consider it. As a mother, what what do you want for him and your, and your other son? Um, I want them to just live a happy life, despite of their ethnicity or despite of my son having, as they call it, a disease. I don't want that to stop him from doing what he always wants to do. He says he wants to be a pilot. <laughs> But obviously with being a pilot, he might be flying the plane and then he might end up getting like pains or something. So they've got to be aware of those things. So, yeah, I don't want him to feel that he can't be a pilot because he might get a crisis <laughs> mid-air and he can't fly the plane. But I want him to know that he can do anything he wants to do. Do you want to hold the ladybird? Yes, creepy. Hey. Sagebird's a bit of a jumpy one, isn't it? Yeah. Because you love to jump around. Because he's not... That's his family. Where's his family? I don't know. What name should we give him? Chaffazoid. Chaffazoid. I think it's going to fly. Look, can you see it's opening its wings? Look. Yay! It flew away, Z. It's gone. Going into this project, we'd made some assumptions about what would be discussed. Designer babies was probably top of the list. But many of those assumptions turned out to be wrong. 
And that's why we did this. Trust, power and identity. These were the common themes that came from our five groups. People wanted to make sure that we learn from historical abuses so as they're not repeated. And they questioned whether we can trust science to police itself. Some reflected on whether they themselves had the knowledge and experience to engage in this debate. And they discussed what was needed to empower others to join in. But what struck me most was how gene editing came to represent so much more than just a new technology that could improve human health. It led to fundamental discussions about what makes us who we are, as individuals and as a society. If we are going to be able to change DNA, we must ensure that the benefits are equally shared with everyone. A conversation about gene editing has already started, but currently it's only some voices that are being heard. And that is what really needs to change. Common Threads was presented by me, Steve Scott. It was produced by Max Sanderson, with original music and mixing by Pascal Wise. Executive producers were Shanida Scotland and Catherine Godfrey. Our commissioning editor is Lindsay Poulton, and our editorial consultant is Alok Jar. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised here, there is support out there. For instance, the Sickle Cell Society is a charity that offers support to families living with the condition. To find out more, head to sicklecellsociety, that's all one word, dot org. We would like to say a massive thanks to everyone who attended our sessions, as well as our local coordinators, Eloise from iGEM, Nick in Cumbria, Anita in Birmingham, Bella in Manchester and Angela in Hertfordshire. Thanks also to Simon, Dom and Lizzie at Involve, as well as Emily Glazier, who helped us coordinate the groups. Special thanks also to Dr Helen O'Neill, who came up to our Birmingham session. We would love to hear what you think about gene editing, as well as any feedback you have on the series. Send us an email to podcasts at theguardian.com. This series is supported by The Wellcome Trust. To find out more about the project, head over to theguardian.com.